This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Better Reading acknowledges the traditional custodians on whose land our office stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Cheryl Arkell from Better Reading. The idea for this podcast came to me from trying to find books to read to my great-nephews. As regular listeners know, I'm from a Lebanese background, and to my surprise, it was difficult finding books where I felt that they could see themselves in the story. It got me thinking about how many Australians must feel like this. Why is there still a lack of diversity in children's books? Why? Late in 2019, Better Reading was awarded a grant from the Copyright Agency to produce a six-part series on diversity in children's writing. At the time, we could not have predicted what 2020 would bring. I now understand more than ever how little I know and how important these conversations are. This series by no means contains all the answers, but I hope it opens up more conversations. I personally have learned a great deal talking to these guests. At times, it was uncomfortable. At times, I wasn't quite sure what I meant or was saying. Afterwards, I've taken the time to reflect on many of the issues my guests discussed. I look forward to learning more. I hope you enjoy our conversation on diversity in children's writing. Rachel Binsala, welcome to Better Reading. I am so thrilled to be talking to you guys. I have admired Magabala books from afar since I think the beginning of my career, like a long time ago, and I'm old. And I've always, <laughs> I was a bookseller for a long time and I sold Magabala books. And I just think that you guys have always, in my mind, been a publisher of excellence. Thank you. <laughs> Because we are so remote, we don't often know what impact our titles have. So we are also so far removed from the effect of um, what's being read and how it's being received. So it's always lovely to get feedback in and around how it's affected people. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's always a great list and we'll talk about it more. Now I'm going to introduce you. Firstly, Magabala Books is Australia's leading Indigenous publishing house. Aboriginal owned and led, they celebrate and nurture the talent and diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. Rachel is a Magabala publisher. Uh, she is a Nimanbur woman and a Yaru woman from the Dampier Peninsula in the Kimberley of Western Australia. She joined Magabala Books in 1993, so you've been there a while. Uh, she recently won the inaugural writing WA Literary Lions Medal awarded to an individual who has made substantial contribution to the vitality and success of Western Australians' literary culture. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you for that. That was a sh complete shock, actually. Yeah. yeah, but a yeah. great accolade, right? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, the day I received the award, I actually wasn't going to turn up because I had had a terrible migraine. So I managed to drink enough water and take enough drugs to be able to sit through the ceremony. And when they actually called my name, I just had an out-of-body experience because I just thought, oh, no, I have to string a sentence together now and I have to talk to people and just wasn't expecting it, especially with um, 
who I was nominated with, Gary and Leslie Reese, and and they are the cornerstone also of West Australian literary culture here. So they've also contributed far and wide as well. So it was it was a complete honour and a complete surprise. Well, congratulations. So tell me how you came into publishing. Firstly, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And how did you get into being an editor stroke publisher? Okay. I grew up in Broome um, in the northwest here. I have a mum who grew up on the Catholic estates of Northern Ireland. So she's originally from Derry or London Derry, as the Anglicans would call it, and her family immigrated out to Australia in the 60s. She went north and nursed and met my father, and my father is an Aboriginal Malay man whose father was um, one of the last hard hat pearling divers here in Broome. So my brother and myself were born here in Broome and we were raised and went to school here. We then moved to Perth where I did spend my uh, teenage years in... Uh, a low socioeconomic area of Perth at the time, which is uh, Girouin, Kundula and Belga. And that was, for me, extraordinarily wonderful because I literally met everybody from every walk of life uh, and diversity as possible in in my school and let alone not, not only my school but also in my year group. So even though there was a hard time to be had at high school, the lessons and the stories that I heard from, you know, the Vietnamese refugees and especially the Polish refugees when they came over with, um, you know, what happened in Poland in the 80s, um, you know, Anglo-Indians, Burmese, Sri Lankans, Pakistanis, you know, uh, Irish. It really was a true melting pot and it, all, it also reflected my childhood growing up in Broome, which is also extraordinarily multicultural especially in and around, you know, uh, Japanese, Chinese influences, you know, Sri Lankan, uh, Salonese, the pearling, uh, the uh, one-arm point lugger builders that came down from the top of the peninsula during the pearling era to help build the boats. So, so I grew up in a really multicultural, multi-talented, multifaceted town. And at the time, in lots of different ways, that probably wasn't recognised. But the Kimberley has then gone on to become, uh, in terms of moving forward with the arts and culture, the Kimberley is also a great a melting pot for all these creative peoples. Um, I spent my high school in Perth, then I did a year of uni or a couple of years of uni, which I d- didn't really agree with. And then my dad was in Perth and met my uncle, who at the time was on the management committee board of Mugabala Books, and he just said to my dad, look, tell daughter there's a job going at Mugabala Books. If she wants to apply, send her CV. And then my dad came home and told me, and my first thought was, what the hell's Mugabala Books? Um, what is that? Never heard of it. Sure, I'll send my CV in. So we did up my CV, and um, we I think there was email then. <laughs> I'm not too sure, but sent it into Mugabala. And um, the then publisher, which was Peter Bibby, who went on to employ me and who also became the very first large influence of my life in terms of um, being an editor and being at Mugabala, he rang me up and virtually gave me a three-hour, it wasn't an interview, it was a three-hour interrogation. (laughs) And he said in the middle of it, 
look, I've got to go on a plane now. As soon as I get off the plane, I'll ring you from Perth and we'll continue on this conversation. And true to his word, he did ring me. And what job were you applying for at that stage? Um, it was as a project editor. I don't even think Mugabala even had an idea about the job itself, but they knew that they needed someone on board to be able to help expand telling stories and editing stories and having someone who was roving on the ground to do remote community work. So he just said, look... What, like finding stories? Um, what happened in the early days was Mugabala was able to get stories and a lot of the early stories were oral historical. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of oral historical narratives that were in at Mugabala that needed further development and moulding and fleshing out to be able to make into stories and to be able to publish. So he virtually said to me, look, there's a job but there's not really a job, but if you come up, you can have one. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, sure, why not? And um, I literally packed my suitcase. My brother had won a a bike. So without telling him, I stole his bike and I put it on the plane because that was going to be my only wheels and broom and um, virtually moved to broom, moved back to broom. And I thought... How old were you at this stage? I was 20. Right. So when I came... Ready, yeah, ready for a job, had no idea what I wanted to do. Publishing was not even a word when I was growing up or back then. And I'm quite surprised now that there are courses, you know, for editorial and for publishing and that people actually think, oh, that's that's what I want to do because even if that had been available back then, it's not something that as a young Indigenous woman from Broome that you would think is open. It's a path that's open to you because usually in publishing it's who you know or you're, you're born into, you know, you're born into the family who are publishers or do you know what I mean? It's sort oh, of... absolutely, I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. so it's... Firstly, for some of our listeners out there, tell me what a publisher stroke editor does because... If you're in the UK or the US, an editor and publisher are the same thing, aren't they? We tend to call editors publishers here, but in the US I I think they call them editors and in the UK. But tell me what is the role of an editor stroke publisher? Um, Well, an editor technically is the person that if you're just a publisher that you would employ or engage services for to work on a manuscript in conjunction with the author. Mm-hmm. to develop it, to flesh it out, to either do a substantive edit or a copy edit. And the role of an editor is to virtually have a conversation with the writer. And sometimes those conversations need to be really nuanced because sometimes the subject matter is highly, uh, can be technical. It, and it depends on the type of editing and the type of publishing that you do do. So educational publishing is so very different from trade. And there's so many different types of genres in trade that people may or may not be able to specialise in or that you can edit in all the different types of genres, but you have a preference for a speciality that you like. So when I was employed as an editor, my job was to then get the oral historical content and to make it into a story or something that could be palatable for the larger population to be able to read. And by palatable, it's not necessarily uh, the definition or standards of the industry as such. Um, Being an Aboriginal publishing house, first and foremost, we preference the story. 
as opposed to preferencing the technical skills that go into storytelling, which is what I think uh, publishing has done over the many, many years. And um, in, in Australia, we're still really obsessed with literary fiction, which is the highest form of writing. And literary fiction, as you know, will give you the most kudos, but won't necessarily pay the bills. You know, so I definitely know that. <laughs> so not only at Mugabala are we balancing the need for storytelling, but we're also having to balance the need of storytelling with the structure of who's going to be able to read this, will I be able to sell it, how do I sell it, how do I, um, how do I say that it's a universal story even though it's so specific to a certain area and so specific to a certain history. So how do we do that? at that level. And I think what's happened in Australia over a really long period of time is that whole cultural cringe. And, you know, the UK will always come back to Australian stories and say, it's too specific, you know, and we're we're talking about uh, just a general standard literary story in Australia with a homogenous set of characters, you know, and they're still coming back and saying to us, that's so specific. People won't understand it. And I think I think what's happened over the years is that we haven't given the reader enough credit for understanding the nuances in storytelling. I absolutely agree with that because our community of Better Read It, they will take anything on. It's about the strength yeah. of the storytelling. They really are open to reading anything. And I'm often surprised what they comment on and what they enjoy and what they don't. But they are really powerfully about strong storytelling. Yeah, and I think the most important thing about storytelling is that once you respect the form of telling a story, you then can't be a snob about where the story comes from. So if there's one thing that I've learned over 27, 28 years is that a good story can come from anywhere. Um, A good story doesn't have to come from a literate storyteller. A good story doesn't have to come from someone who's has good hearing. We've had such a diverse range of stories from every corner of this continent. Every conceivable person, you know, has once they stand in their truth and tell their story, there there is an authenticity there that the reader can relate to and make connection with. It doesn't matter whether you're a person of colour, whether you're gay, whether you're trans, you know, it's it's about being able to make connection. And also at Magabala, in terms of not only the storytelling, but also respecting where the story comes from is also then allowing space for the storyteller to be able to tell their story in a culturally safe environment. And some of the things that I take for normal and granted with uh, language, semantics, syntax, the way when I grew up, um, we spoke in Broome a certain type of Creole. And so the my unconscious structure of how I speak will always be that because that's what I grew up with. So sometimes I don't necessarily see that it is so completely different on a page because I'm so used to it because I'm immersed in it. So it's a different way of thinking. So rather than saying, oh, we need to correct that, it's kind of like, I don't understand why we can't leave it. And the best storytellers that I have read over the years have 
literally English has been their second language. So how they think about their words, so their English use of the words is so slightly different and unsettling and after a while it gets under your skin so you're able to, you're literally able to get into the unconsciousness of the writer who's being the narrator who's telling a story. So once you allow yourself to be open to a different way of thinking, once again, it's about all those things that are small that make up the bigger picture. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I worked with a young man called Majok Tulba who was from Somalia. Uh, he was a refugee and he wrote fiction. For him, as it turns out, he was a good writer. But what he was is he was a good orator. And a lot of cultures, and I think the Aboriginal culture is the same, that stories have been told over time and they have been told vocally over time. And I think what Magabala Books does well is that you capture that as a record, if you like, and then share it with the rest of Australia. Yeah, it is. And I think... One of the fundamental things about that I've learned over my years and because I've grown up in the town where I've grown up in my culture, um, I'm also the sum of all my parts. So my mum has also read to me uh, all the Irish writers uh, oh, over right. the years. and she, yeah. So she's also read to me English poets. I grew up thinking at one stage in my life that I was never going to read any other book but Enid Blyton because I absolutely loved those stories. You know, I just couldn't imagine ever growing up and becoming an adult and never reading her ever again, you know. Like, so, so strong was, so strong is storytelling in it. And I think what it goes back to is that um, the actor Alan Rickman said it um, at the end of the Harry Potter series and he had just come back from seeing um, Daniel Radcliffe and Daniel and he was on stage and he'd come back and he'd virtually seen him you know grow up and he just had the most amazing quote that just made me cry that there is something innate in all of us to be able to listen to and be told stories it is it is a human, oh, how can I say it? It's culturally just being human. That's what being human is well, about. Well, I think that there's that quote, people, humans, they need, what was it? It was shelter, food and story. That that's really what humans actually need to survive. Yeah, and 
and it is and it Philip is true Pullman, i think was the um, yeah yeah where that came from yeah and he and he's such a fantastic layered storyteller mm-hmm. himself and i used to work at a bookshop and i used to read lots of different types of books but i always used to say to people you know the best storytellers are usually you can find them in the young adult section <laughs> because they really crystallize and are straight to the point with a lot of that stuff and he's i i loved his series when i was working at the bookshop i want to talk about magavala books when i look at that as a publishing house or as a as a brand identity for me it is everything i see and read from there is something that i enjoy but i'm immersing myself usually in great story and also diversity, right? But I guess you guys, it's double diversity, isn't it? Because you're publishing the diverse story from a, from a diverse Aboriginal population because it is so diverse as well. And then yep. you're publishing it for people to understand and have empathy, let's say, about Aboriginal people, but also to see diversity and story in everyone. That'd be right. Um, yes, that I think that sums it up pretty well. It's, 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 it's. Oh, I can't explain it. I've been saying the same things for the last really twenty, twenty-seven, twenty-eight years, mm. and no doubt uh, we will continue to say the same things over the many, many years to come, because as humans, we are, and history. It's complicated and we we need to also recognise the complexity of where we live, the history that has come before colonisation and the history that has come with it. And I think because I've grown up in it, I get it and I understand it. I don't get all of it because I, you know, I only grew up in Broome, but I grew up in also a really complicated social structure because not only in Australia are we talking about the White Australia policy, but also the 1905 Aboriginal Act and the removal of children if they were half-caste, quarter-caste, quadroon and stuff like that. So we've got that. But also when the local population started to marry into the Asian population, which they didn't want, there's also a hierarchy and a structure in that, which is reflected in the, you know, the pearling luggers and the pearling boats. You know, the Japanese were the the master race, followed by the Chinese, followed by the um, the Malaysians. So if you're Aboriginal and Japanese, you're on a higher social structure than you are if you're an Aboriginal Malaysian. So when we talk about complexities and nuances, there's all of the histories that we are the result of in lots of different ways. So to be able to reflect these particular stories or these experiences, not only in biography, but also moving forward into fiction, you know, and possibly dystopian fiction where the narrative and the storytelling can be whatever it chooses to be in that regard. It's also about finding a way that is safe for readers to be able to access this information because what's happened in the last 28 to 30 years ago, a lot of um, non-Indigenous people wouldn't have picked up titles by Aboriginal authors because, you know what, it's too hard and we're not interested and they should get over it. And what's happening now is that with the dearth of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander storytellers and writers and creators and creatives being so much more a part of the ecology that make up Australia, these stories aren't hard anymore. And you don't necessarily have to feel guilty, but to be able to understand a big portion of people that have not had any recognition or have not been allowed to be a part of this country who were here in the beginning 
is huge. So to be able to understand, like people say, well, where do I start? What type of book is it? And it's like, if you can read children's picture books to start with, because that's a great place to start and then, then move on to there and read. I started at picture books as an adult because I was a bookseller <coughs> on the floor and that's when I first, first came across Magabala Books, as I was saying earlier on. But I was attracted, firstly, by picture books because of the design and the art. I mean, just yeah. beautifully produced always. And then when you started reading the stories, it just opened up a whole new world for me. Also, I didn't know that there were so many languages as well. Like, I learnt so much in that process. And I think that that's what's so important in talking about diversity in children's books. And I think it's so important that children from every single background see themselves in literature and story. So that's yeah. for all of us, isn't it, right? But then it is for us as readers to start to see that people, we're not all the same, that we're all humans, but we all have different, you know, ways of living, different traits, different whatever. Just gave me great joy to see that Aboriginal people were writing and publishing, but also that I was learning and reading and enjoying. It is important for children to be able to see themselves reflected, and especially in picture books. So I grew up in Broome. Uh, my mum took me back to meet her family and we did a tour of Northern Ireland uh, when I was 19. I was in a pub, as you do when you're in Ireland. I was sitting and talking to some extended family and they sort of said to me, oh, you know, you're Australian. And I just looked at him and I went, no, I'm not. And not because I was making an overt political statement, which it is in a sense, but it's kind of like, well, when I was growing up, I wasn't considered Australian. My story, my dad's story, my family's story, the history of who we are, we're not part of your history. We're not part of your conversation. We're not part of your media, your coverage. You know, we are not part of your morality in a sense because we're not. So, if you want people to be Australian in that sense, then you need to be honest about the history and you need to be able to reflect upon in a way that is conducive for the greater good of the community and you need to be able to reflect upon all those that have come here or are here that still contribute to the national narrative that we have today, which we're only seeing, you know, a certain portion of or a certain percentage of that doesn't reflect the greater community. Mm. Rachel, I had a really similar experience because my parents came out in the 50s. They're Lebanese people. I mean, I was born here, yeah. but, but when I was growing up, I was definitely considered Lebanese by the community. And yeah. when I was 2021, 20, I went to Lebanon for the first time and my grandmother, it's such a similar story, she took me around to meet her neighbours. She was holding my hand and she took me in and she said, this is Cheryl, she's my granddaughter and she's Australian. And I started to cry because I thought, no, 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 I'm, I'm not Australian, I'm Lebanese. And she said, oh, don't yeah. be ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> no. That was very, very tough for me. That set me on a downward spiral because for the first time I realised that I belonged to neither. Yeah, it is, it is very difficult, um, especially when you are a product of circumstance, for want of a better word, and in history and, and all of those things. And it also ties back into that sense of belonging and acceptance, which is at the heart really of every single individual the world over. That's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And to be able to reflect 
the authenticity of storytelling or and especially your your story you know like that that would, you know if, if we had more time and we weren't on doing this like I would sit down and ask you a lot more questions about how did you navigate that and what did you do and and then what happened because then what happens after a 20-year period as you get older you just go ah who cares that's where I'm at and and it's true because you yeah. are the sum you are the sum of all your parts absolutely and it, it's fun because when I was growing up and I had a Malaysian grandfather and you know and he spoke he only spoke Malay so he didn't really speak English and he was really grumpy and and all of those things so it was kind of like oh yeah you know we grew up and call ourselves like mullahs so what like little mullahs little aboriginal kids and then um when i went overseas to asia and i was like oh yeah you know we're all asian and it was like i am so not asian (laughs) do you know what i mean like i don't necessarily look at you know i wasn't raised there i don't have you know the structure that's behind me to have grown up in it so i was like oh okay i'm not that either so i'm not that and i'm not that and it was kind of like well i'm just you are just the sum of all your parts mm. and the history, you know, and circumstance. So it is so important. I just want to touch on what you said there. It's really been incredibly interesting chatting with you and where you talk about belonging and acceptance. And if we take that back to diversity and literature, it just should be hand in hand, shouldn't it? Everybody needs to feel that they belong and accepted, and that should be reflected in what we're reading, what a society's reading as well. Oh, look, it should be. It should be really straightforward, but more often than not, it's not because, it, for want of a better word, you know, interrogate unconscious bias. So if you don't know you're biased and you don't know that's what you're doing, how do you know to change it? For want, of a, for want of a better word, it's kind of like you literally have to engage with experiences and individuals and peoples that are not similar to yours, not similar to your own. I don't understand why for so long, especially in publishing, it hasn't been done much more. I would agree with that. I've Making this podcast series has really made me reflect because, I mean, I've been in the Sydney scene, largely in the retail and marketing side. I did spend three years in publishing, but mainly most of it has been on the outside. But certainly in the industry and a lot of publishers and editors and salespeople and all of those and authors are my friends. But when we started recording this, I really have been reflecting on my career and how we got to here with very few publishers like Magabala Books. I'm kind of shocked that I haven't even noticed that earlier. No, and even though we're recognised for what we do, it still has been a struggle for us because we are working in a structured WASP environment with a sensibility that reading is also about class. So we also have a class boundary. Um, You know, then we also have a cultural component and, you know, and then we also have the historical component who for us that we also need to consider. So let's, let's just take an Aboriginal story, for example, and interrogating unconscious bias. So if we had the exact two same stories told, we have an Aboriginal storyteller and we have a non-Aboriginal storyteller, the non-Indigenous story will always get up, will always have feet. Because what's happening is that even though you don't know that you don't know, it's kind of like, for want of a better word, white people can sniff out white things. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean it in the way that, 
you are subconsciously attracted to things that you know. So you're subconsciously attracted to the language. Well, it gives you that, a comfort because you know it. It's familiar. Yeah, and, and it is. So to have also worked in a space that we have worked in to not only talk about um, connection of story and, the, and connection of communities and also connection of the national narrative as well, but it's also about... How do we then educate our distributors? How then do we educate the booksellers? How then do we also educate those that don't know that for Aboriginal stories to be told, um, they need to preference Aboriginal storytellers? So if it's a Lebanese story that needs to be told, I would preference a Lebanese storyteller. If it's a refugee story to be told, I wouldn't preference uh, a non-refugee person to be able to tell that story. But that's what happens in publishing. You co-opt stories that you that touch you and you want to tell it and you want to be a part of it. And also, it's like, yeah, that's great. You know, it's the arts. We need to be creative. We need to have space for that. But it's also, you need to interrogate yourself. Are you the best person to tell that story? Or can you make space for somebody who stands in their own authenticity, who might not necessarily have the platform or the voice and make space for them to be able to tell it? So if you're there, what can you do to give a helping hand to those that don't have the opportunities to be able to engage an opportunity in that way? Rachel, that's incredibly interesting i have enjoyed our conversation so much and you know what i have learned so much and hopefully we'll talk again sometime soon it's not the end for me it's been an absolute pleasure so thank you so much for the opportunity if you'd like more information about better reading follow us on facebook or visit betterreading.com.au This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.